welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star and then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you, Melina, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Connect workshop, which is Weight Changes After Cancer Treatments, Why, why Is It Happening, and What Can I Do About It? This is, our, this is part two of the ninth annual Cancer Survivorship Series, Living With, Through, and Beyond Cancer. And we're delighted with all of you being on the call today, and you've been a wonderful response to this program. It's such an important topic in the survivorship community. And I'd like to say this program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care, the National Cancer Institute, Live Strong, the American Cancer Society, Intercultural Cancer Council, Living Beyond Breast Cancer, and the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. And it really is because of this collaborative effort that we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. Now, we have on the call today over 2,958 participants. So there are many of you on the call today. This is a very large call. And you come from all over the United States, from all different areas of the United States. And we also have international participants from Africa, Australia, Brazil, Canada, the Grenadines, Hawaii, Jamaica, India, Ireland, Italy, Korea, South Korea, Malaysia, Nigeria, the Philippines, Portugal, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Venezuela, United Arab Emirates, and United Kingdom. So you really come from all over the world, and you are truly a group of information seekers. Today's program is made possible by support from the National Cancer Institute and Live Strong. And I really want to thank them for their support, not only of today's program, but of our entire series. This is our ninth annual Cancer Survivorship Series, and we are in the process of thinking about next year's series already. So we are, this has been a long-term commitment by the National Cancer Institute and Live Strong. Now, I would like to turn your attention for a moment to the materials that you received from Cancer Care. In those materials is an outline that our speakers have prepared, and there is information about all of the collaborating organizations, really lots of information and fact sheets about them, just wonderful information that you can um, you know, access and as extra resources um, after this call. Now, there also is an evaluation form, and I would ask you each to take a moment and complete that evaluation form. Indeed, the program today, the topic, was really determined by, by recommendations that were made on last year's series. So we very much listen to what you suggest we do. So tell us what you'd like us to do next year so we can offer the topics that you really find mo would find most useful. That's very important to us that we really are responsive to what you, what you would like us to do. Now, I have the pleasure of introducing uh, my co-moderator for today's program, Dr. Catherine Alfano. Uh, Dr. Alfano is Program Director and Behavioral Scientist, Office of Cancer Survivorship, Division of Cancer Control and Population Sciences, National Cancer Institute, National Institutes of Health. And Dr. Alfano has been instrumental in making this program possible, collaborating with us, helping us to choose speakers and topics. And I actually want to invite her to say some words of um, uh, welcome to all of you, and put this in a context in terms of the survivorship community. Dr. Alfano? Thank you, Carolyn. And let me add my warm welcome to all of our in invited speakers and to all of the listeners who've joined us for today's workshop. 
I, I really am truly honored to be able to co-host this ninth annual Cancer Survivorship Teleconference Series that focuses on the issues faced by survivors and their loved ones after treatment ends. On behalf of the National Cancer Institute, which is represented by my office, the Office of Cancer Survivorship, and by the Office of Communications and Education, we are really pleased to serve once again as an organizational partner and co-funder of this program. As some of you know, the National Cancer Institute established the Office of Cancer Survivorship in 1996, and this was really in direct response to the articulate and compelling demand by cancer survivors and by the advocacy community to improve the length and quality of survival for all those living with a history of cancer, which we estimate to be over 12 million people in the United States alone. One of the ways that the office achieves its mission is by participating in the development of educational materials and outreach activities such as this teleconference series that are designed to equip cancer survivors and their caregivers with the information that they need to achieve optimal health and well-being after cancer. In the last nine years, the numbers of participants in this survivorship series and the diversity of countries that you represent have grown. Along with our program partners, we're deeply gratified this, by this response. At the same time, though, we recognize that the popularity of this series is a testament to the fact that for many cancer survivors, caregivers, and families, even though cancer treatment may be over, the cancer experience is definitely not. Today we are talking about why weight changes after cancer treatment and what you can do to manage your weight. We chose this topic for two reasons. First, Survivors tell us that weight change, especially weight gain, is common and problematic as they transition from treatment to recovery. And second, we know from the research accumulating on this topic that weight matters in cancer survivorship. Gaining weight does not just affect how you look. It can also affect how well you move, how easily you get around, and how well you can participate in life. Weight gain can make some of the other symptoms you are having, like fatigue or depression, worse, and it increases your risk for other kinds of diseases like diabetes and heart disease. Because weight matters, successfully managing your weight is part of being a healthy survivor, and I'm very pleased that we have three outstanding national experts to address this important topic today. We hope that after today's teleconference, you will have some practical tips for successfully managing your weight so that you can have control over this important part of your health. Again, I really am delighted to be co-hosting this workshop with my colleague, Dr. Carolyn Messner, and I'll now turn the program over to her. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Alfano, for just wonderful words of welcome and also for putting the program in a context, and I hope that everyone will find the, this program very helpful. And our first speaker is uh, Dr. Anna Schwartz, and Dr. Anna Schwartz will provide the survivor perspective. She is affiliate professor, University of Washington, nurse practitioner, St. John's Medical Center. And the tradition of these, these programs has been that our first speaker is a, a survivor themselves, and really does uh, set the tone for the entire program, really helps to inform the program. So I now turn the program over to Dr. Schwartz. Thank you for the introduction and for the opportunity to participate in this exciting discussion. I was diagnosed in 1988 at the age of 24 with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I heard those words and my whole life and world as I knew it started spinning and caving in on me. Alone, terrified, and overwhelmed with decisions and emotion, I was about to embark on a journey that, unbeknownst to me, would change my life and open opportunities I never expected. 
I struggled for many years on and off chemotherapy and gained a lot of weight, nearly 50 pounds. How could this be? How unfair. I guess I was supposed to be just happy that I was alive, but I wasn't. I was fat, depressed, and overwhelmed with the uncertainty of cancer. I felt life slipping away as though I hadn't had the chance to live fully and to contribute to it. I could hear the sand in the timer slipping away, and I decided I needed to do something. What would I do? Well, follow my dreams. But to accomplish those dreams, I had to get moving. So I started riding my bike, first around the block, then two blocks, then with some local cyclists, and then a friend said I should join a group ride at 9 a.m. every morning. With great trepidation, I went to ride with the group. These were not the motley cyclists I'd been riding with. These were men and women with chiseled muscles and very fit-looking. I was a fat, bald dumpling and felt horribly out of place. I wondered how I could keep from embarrassing myself with this athletic group. The first ride was slow-paced, but the next three days were hard and fast, and I struggled. It was hard to get out the door to ride with these folks, but they kept saying, Great job. We'll see you tomorrow. So I felt some sick obligation to be there the next morning. For many weeks, I would get dropped from the group, and one of the fellows would come back and push push me back to the pack of riders and keep his hand on my back until I was firmly ensconced in their draft. I couldn't talk because I was working so hard to hang on. They kept pushing me onwards. Hills were my enemy. As hard as I tried to stay up, I would get dropped like a lead weight. Of course, when you're overweight, it's hard to keep up, and it's embarrassing to keep getting pushed back. But I kept at it. Eventually, I got fit enough to thank the riders who had helped me. In time, I could talk and pedal and quickly learned that these folks were world-class racers who, I think, found me a determined, fat little oddity. Over time, the group encouraged me to start racing, and I got picked up by a national team. As long as the races were flat, I could compete and even win money. But being overweight, it's hard to climb, and while I was losing a lot of weight and getting my own chiseled muscles, weight is a cyclist's enemy. All this exercise was changing me. I was getting fitter, faster, and confident. The cloud of uncertainty, fear, and emotional struggle was lifting, and I was starting to feel like I would have the time and be strong enough to live a full life, however long that might be. I was losing weight, and my depression was lifting. Regular exercise was making me aware of what I was eating, when I was eating, and how much I was eating. You don't want to eat a high-fat meal and then try to ride your bike hard, or do any exercise for that matter. In a short time, my persistence, patience, and determination carried me on to set several world records, win a national championship, and enjoy more life more than I had ever expected. The accolades for victory were fun and simply amazing. But what was most rewarding was that old friends who hadn't seen me in a while didn't recognize me. I actually had several people come up and start to introduce themselves to me and then realize it was me, a formerly fat girl in a changed body. It makes me laugh to look back on that now. Exercise changed my life. It not only helped me survive and thrive as a survivor, but it gave me a passion and intensity for life and a determination to try and make a difference for others. While I was doing all this cycling, I was a nurse in a bone marrow transplant unit. My personal and professional experience, observing that patients who did simple exercises seemed to do better physically and emotionally, shaped my career and life's work. I embarked on a path to complete a Ph.D. and have been fortunate to become a leader in cancer and exercise research. Weight gain during and after cancer treatment is common. 
What is important to remember is that you can do something about it. It takes patience, persistence, and determination to set realistic goals. You don't have to set a world record to lose weight. You just have to be consistent in your quest to change your exercise, diet, and lifestyle. I hope the information I have shared with you today will inspire you to begin an exercise and diet program to not only strengthen your body and heal your soul, but also to help you realize your potential to live life to the fullest. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Schwartz, for just a wonderful um, survivor perspective, so very inspiring and informative and really providing some really uh, inspiration for everyone on the call. Um, so thank you so much. And um, I know there will be questions for you later on during the call, but thank you so much. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Jennifer Ligabel. Dr. Ligabel is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. She's attending physician, Women's Cancers Program, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And Dr. Ligabel is going to address an overview of weight changes after cancer treatments, what causes these changes, communicating with your healthcare team about your weight changes, and recommended lifestyle modifications. It's my pleasure to turn the program over to Dr. Ligabel. Thank you, Carolyn. It is uh, definitely a high bar to follow a world record holder in anything, but I will do my best. Um, as a medical oncologist, part of my job, an important part of my job, is to talk to patients about side effects of cancer therapy. And I always try to mention to patients that weight gain is a side effect that accompanies many cancer therapies. This is a surprise to many patients, and I think that many times we still have visions in our mind of cancer treatment from many years ago when patients were quite ill and required intravenous fluids and hospitalizations. And in many ways, the fact that patients often will gain weight during therapy is a sign that we've come a long way in cancer treatment. Our anti-nausea medicines and other supportive medications have made the experience of receiving chemotherapy and other treatments easier for many patients. But on the flip side, many patients do gain weight during therapy. The average patient with breast cancer may gain 5 to 10 pounds in the year after cancer therapy. And there are many, many studies, mostly in breast cancer, but in other cancers as well, men with prostate cancer receiving hormone-lowering therapies for their disease, children who receive chemotherapy for leukemia, patients with lymphoma, women with other gynecologic malignancies. Study after study shows that patients tend to gain weight after receiving therapy for these cancers. And it's not just true in the United States. There have actually been studies that have shown that weight gain is very similar in cancer patients, whether they receive their, their treatment here in the U.S., in China, in France, in Malaysia, in Turkey, in many of the other countries that today's listeners hail from. Weight gain seems to be a similar response to treatment, regardless of where patients are treated. There have been a number of studies which have looked at who is most likely to gain weight as a result of cancer therapy. And study after study has shown that one of the biggest risk factors for gaining weight is receiving chemotherapy. And the longer the chemotherapy regimen and the more steroids it contains, the more weight gain that people experience. There have also been studies that show that young women tend to gain more weight during cancer therapy than other patients. Women who undergo menopause as a result of their cancer therapy have the highest rates of weight gain in many studies. 
Other studies show that people that are leaner when they're diagnosed with cancer for reasons that we don't completely understand are also at an increased risk of gaining weight as compared to individuals who are heavier when they're diagnosed. So when looking at this, do we really understand why people gain weight as a response to cancer therapy? There are certain themes that emerge. Hormonal changes are one of the biggest risk factors for weight gain. We see this in the young women who undergo menopause as a result of their cancer therapy. We know that hormonal changes even outside of cancer treatments can cause weight gain. The average woman will gain 5 to 10 pounds as she goes through menopause, but the difference between undergoing a natural menopause where hormone levels slowly drop and undergoing a sudden menopause during chemotherapy or other treatments is that this weight gain doesn't take place over three years, but it can take place over a few months and be much more pronounced. We also see weight gain with other types of hormonal changes. Men who receive testosterone-lowering therapy as part of their prostate cancer treatment can gain significant amounts of weight. And they often gain weight mostly in the form of fat and lose lean muscle mass. And this is something that we see in many different types of weight gain associated with cancer therapies, is that patients are not only gaining weight, but they're specifically gaining fat and losing muscle. And that can make it harder to get back and get moving again after cancer therapy is completed. There's also a lot of research looking at other types of hormonal changes. Women who take hormonal medications for early-stage breast cancer, such as tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitors, will often complain of weight changes. There's actually some research that's a little bit mixed on this topic, suggesting that sometimes taking sugar pills in the same setting can be associated with weight gain as well. But I'll tell you that in my practice, women not only can complain about the difficulties with gaining weight in this setting, but that it's much harder to take weight off um, when hormones are being, hormone levels are being changed. We also know that changes in activity are associated with weight change after cancer treatment. And Dr. Schwartz talked a lot about the importance of physical activity in cancer survivors. There's been a lot of research that shows that the average person who's diagnosed with cancer decreases their physical activity. Oftentimes, cancer therapies can make patients tired, can give them pain or other side effects that make it less appealing to be physically active. There was a large study called the Health, Eating, Activity, and Lifestyle Study, which looked at the amount of exercise that 1,000 women who were diagnosed with early breast cancer were doing in the time before their diagnosis, and then asking them the same question serially during the survivorship period. They found that women decreased their activity levels by about a third from between the time they were diagnosed and the first follow-up period, and that more than 50% of women had not resumed their pre-cancer levels of physical activity even three years after their diagnosis. So cancer therapy can make patients less active, and this can be a long-lasting change. There have been studies that have looked at what are the greatest predictors of weight gain in patients who are diagnosed with cancer. And study after study suggests that 
people that become less active are the most likely to gain weight. And this is true in breast cancer and prostate cancer and colon cancer and many different malignancies. There was a really groundbreaking study that was done by an investigator named Wendy DeMarc Wanafried in the 1990s where she took 34 women who were receiving chemotherapy for early breast cancer. And she looked to see what the women were eating before they started their therapy, what their metabolism was. So that's basically the rate that your body burns energy when you're not exercising, and then looked at their exercise patterns. And what she found from the time before cancer therapy started to the midst of chemotherapy was that women weren't really eating more calories or their, and their metabolic rates didn't change significantly, but women were becoming significantly less active. And the less active a person was, the more weight she would gain. And this has been shown in several other studies as well, that physical activity is really important to helping maintain a and maintain your weight both during cancer therapy and afterwards and for everyone regardless of a cancer diagnosis. So we will also be talking about diet and weight as we go forward. And all of these things are very important parts of cancer survivorship. And they're also important things to involve your healthcare team in. And I think as Anna was, Dr. Schwartz was talking about earlier, sometimes cancer survivors have the feeling when they're talking to their healthcare providers that talking about weight or concerns like this seems somehow frivolous. Medical visits are focused on treatments that people are receiving, the risk of cancer coming back in the future. And talking about weight sometimes seems like it's not something that should be part of a medical visit. But in fact, it's extremely important to involve your healthcare team in your concerns about weight. We know that gaining weight can be a very bad thing for people's self-image. And this is really an important issue for cancer survivors. Many times cancer patients have gone through surgery, which can be disfiguring, have gone through radiation and other treatments that can affect their body image. And adding weight gain to that can make body image very difficult for patients with cancer. We also know that weight gain can, as Dr. Alfano discussed earlier, can be a risk factor for developing other health issues. It's not fair to have undergone treatment for cancer only to be diagnosed with heart disease a few years later. And we also know that excess weight can make it difficult for people to carry on their activities of daily living. It's a lot harder to do even the simplest tasks if you're carrying around an extra 50 pounds. Finally, having weight gain that was associated with cancer treatment is a constant reminder to patients of their diagnosis and the treatment that they went through. As people are trying to move forward with their lives, having excess weight uh, that was gained as a result of cancer therapy is a constant reminder of the past. So it's important to talk to your doctor about these things. And there are many things that healthcare providers can offer patients in terms of weight management. Most hospitals have access to dietitians that can help patients with weight management strategies and also can help to dispel some of the myths about food that are unfortunately way too prevalent on the Internet um, and talk shows, books that talk about specific foods that can cause cancer or cause cancer-related problems. Many of my patients become very worried about their eating patterns and avoid foods that may be healthy for them because of some of this misinformation. So meeting with a dietary professional is a very important part of survivorship care. 
Your physician may also be able to refer you to physical activity programs. More and more cancer centers have access to yoga classes and other fitness classes for their cancer survivors. Local communities also partnering with the Lance Armstrong Foundation have started um, cancer survivorship exercise classes. The American College of Sports Medicine has started a uh, process of certification of exercise trainers, making sure that individuals are familiar um, with exercise issues related to cancer. And all of these resources can help people get moving again uh, after a cancer diagnosis. I think it's also important to talk to your physician about what's safe for you. Many patients worry about exercise during and after cancer therapy. Could it be harmful for them in some way? And your medical professionals can help dispel some of these fears and help you figure out what the best way for you to start an exercise program would be. They can also talk to you about some of the guidelines that have been put forward for cancer survivors. Both the American Cancer Society and the American College of Sports Medicine have issued guidelines for lifestyle behaviors in cancer survivors. Both of them start with the central recommendation that patients should stay active both during their cancer therapy and afterwards. There have been dozens and dozens of studies that have shown that exercise is safe for cancer populations, both during chemotherapy and radiation and afterwards. These studies have also shown that participating in an exercise program helps people feel better, gives them more energy, lowers pain and other side effects of therapy. The studies have looked at a number of different types of exercise, from walking programs to things that are more exotic, like dragon boat racing and fencing. And they've shown that really, no matter what type of exercise you pursue, being active has many health benefits for cancer survivors. We think that it is very important to speak to your healthcare team before beginning any kind of exercise program. But the American, uh, the American College of Sports Medicine uh, did issue guidelines that suggest that for most patients, beginning a moderate walking program is safe without a lot of exercise testing or other evaluation. So that's often a good place for patients to start. There's also been a lot of interest in strength training. As we discussed earlier, men who are receiving treatment for prostate cancer many times will experience losses in lean muscle, and this is something that we see in other cancer types as well. It's important to help build that muscle back, and it will make it easier to exercise as time goes forward. So incorporating strength training into an exercise routine is important. There's also been some exciting new research uh, from an investigator named uh, Katie Schmitz looking at strength training exercise in breast cancer patients. For a long time, we thought that strength training with the upper body wasn't safe for patients who've had breast cancer, worried that if patients were lifting weights with their arm, that would lead to arm swelling, a complication called lymphedema. Fortunately, with some very interesting recent studies, Dr. Schmitz has shown that for women who already have lymphedema, engaging in a very slowly progressive weight training program can actually help lower the amount of times that women suffer from arm swelling. And there's research underway which will prove whether or not this type of program can also help prevent arm swelling in patients who don't yet have this problem. So there's a lot of very helpful recommendations for exercise in cancer survivors, um, as well as for weight and diet. And I think Dr. Rock will be speaking more specifically about some of the dietary changes that are recommended for cancer survivors in her uh, section of this conference. Thank you.
Well, thank you very much, Dr. Ligabel, for a very comprehensive and informative presentation. There's lots of information, and I know that we'll have lots of questions for you during the Q&A. Just very helpful. Thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. Cheryl Rock. Dr. Rock is Professor of Family and Preventive Medicine, Cancer Prevention and Control Program, University of California, San Diego. And she's going to address weight management strategies, dietary changes that cancer survivors can make, and the importance of exercise. I'm now going to turn the program over to Dr. Rock. Thank you. It's a pleasure to participate in this important event, and I'm hoping that I can provide a lot of real practical information that will help for you to take home and strategies that actually work. And I have to start by pointing out that even though it feels like it's very difficult to lose weight, there are now many studies that have shown that making lifestyle changes, diet changes, and exercise changes actually can successfully help people lose weight and keep it off. In fact, it's important to tie those two things together because anyone can lose weight if they just stop eating, but that doesn't last very long. And typically when people lose weight through crazy ways like fasting, they usually regain it all. So the point is to try to find those changes that you can sustain over a long period of time and will help you lose weight and, more importantly, keep it off. Well, what's the biology behind weight change? It comes down to a concept that we often describe as energy balance. It's basically how many calories you take in compared to how many calories you burn up. Now, I'll get back to talking about exercise in a few minutes, but when you look at the calories that are burned up, the biggest determinant of that number is the amount of muscle mass or lean tissue that you have on your body. And that's why, from what you've heard from the other speakers, we believe that cancer survivors often have a tougher time losing weight because they've lost some muscle mass, and that makes it more difficult to burn many calories. The good news is you can restore that. And exercise, as you've already heard, is important because it will help restore that muscle mass, and then in the long run, it helps maintenance of that weight loss go better because then you're burning more calories even when you're not physically active, even when you're sleeping. So back to this energy balance. If you're taking in more calories than you're expending, you're going to gain weight. If you are taking in fewer calories than you're expending, you're going to lose weight. And in fact, eating fewer calories is still the predominant factor that will help you lose weight. What's recommended is that you reduce your caloric intake, not hugely, but enough that you have a deficit, and so those extra calories that you need to stay alive will be coming from your fat tissue. It's like having a little extra gas tank in your car. And over time, when you're taking in less than what you're burning, you'll be emptying that gas tank and you'll lose the fat. A pound of fat stores about 3,500 calories. So if you cut back anywhere from 500 to 1,000 calories a day, which is prudent, you would be burning about 2 pounds, 1 to 2 pounds of body fat per week. And that's a rate of weight loss that would suggest that you're losing fat. You're not losing more muscle. You're not losing more bone. You're not just getting a little bit more dehydrated. If you want an estimate of how many calories you're currently expending so you know how to make this deficit, if you take your current body weight, multiply it by 12, that's a good estimate of about how many calories you're burning. And then cut back that number to about 500 or 1,000 calories less than that, and that will be a calorie level to aim for in order to lose weight. Now, one of the most interesting things that's emerged in research about what is helpful for people losing weight and keeping it off is that there's a concept called energy density, that some food has real high calories for a number of bites that you get or the volume it takes up on the plate. Things like cheese or nuts or oil or butter 
are all high in energy for the amount that they cover on a plate or fill in your mouth. On the other hand, there are foods like vegetables and most fruits, especially fruits like melon and strawberries and and those juicy fruits that are high in water, those are very low-energy, dense foods. And so if you start a meal with a big salad and a low-fat salad dressing on it or some fresh fruit that's cut up, you end up filling up on those kinds of foods, and they will make you feel more satisfied. Then you'll be content with having smaller amounts of those foods that are more energy-dense, like cheese or oils or nuts or meat. So that's a, a really good strategy in terms of diet composition, to put most of what's on your plate should be things like vegetables and fruits, and then you'll be content with that, and so you'll be more likely to eat less of the other stuff. Not that you shouldn't eat the other stuff, because that's a good source of protein and, and other nutrients as well, but it's a strategy that now in many studies has been shown to be useful. There are also a lot of behavioral skills that can help with eating less calories. Like, for example, clean out your pantry. Don't keep the tempting stuff around home because then you're going to be always fighting the urge to eat. We always say that if you have trouble controlling yourself, then control your environment. Control what's around you. Don't have your favorite food tucked in the freezer or in the in the pantry. So clean out the fridge. Things that will help you eat smaller portions are also very helpful. Like, for example, having things served to you in the portion that you intend to eat. Don't bring a big bag of, of popcorn or potato chips out to the kitchen, out to the TV from the kitchen and think, oh, I'm just going to eat one ounce. Most people will polish off whatever is in front of them. So anything that help, can help you eat a smaller portion, eating on smaller plates, portioning out what you actually intend to eat. It's also a really good idea to learn how to estimate calories and read food labels because we have such a wide choice of foods, and there are many very tasty lower-calorie choices in the market now that we didn't have available even 10 years ago. Also, it's a good idea to have planned regular meals. Don't just wake up and say, well, hmm, what will I have for breakfast today, and start searching for what's in the fridge. Or go to a restaurant and say, hmm, let's check out the menu, because if you don't plan ahead, then you're much more likely to be stimulated and to make choices that may not be the best choice. It's also highly recommended that you do some self-monitoring, which means jotting down what you eat. Keep a little food notebook, a little diary where you can jot down what you're eating. People who monitor regularly what they're eating are people who lose weight because they're aware, they're eating consciously, and they're also people who are checking on things so that they can really mark their progress. It's like if you set out on a, a journey across the United States, you want to have a map. So this is a way of you have a map and then you look at street signs and you have an idea of where you're going. Also, exercise diaries are good in that way, that you make an appointment to exercise. Put that on your calendar. It's something that it won't just happen to you if you don't plan it. And that planning ahead works for both diet and exercise changes. It's also recommended that you monitor your weight regularly. We didn't used to think that, that maybe it would freak people out if they saw their weight might go up a little bit. But if you accept the fact that you're going to have fluctuations, again, it's like tracking progress. It's something you pay attention to, and that regular weighing will help you stay on track. It's also a good idea to demonstrate commitment, to tell people around you what you're doing and that you, you want their help. And be very specific. That's the best way to get social support for exercise and diet changes, that 
you say to a spouse or a friend, it, it would be helpful for me if you could watch the kids because then I can go out and exercise for a few minutes and give that kind of concrete suggestion. In terms of exercise, what's recommended for exercise is to promote weight loss and prevention of weight regain that you set a goal for 60 to 90 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity every day. Now, that sounds daunting, but that's a long-term goal. If you start with even just 10 minutes a day, it starts to get more habituated for you, and it can become a, a behavioral pattern like brushing your teeth. It's just something that you want to do. And another good point to note is that it doesn't have to be one block time. You could do that in 10-minute intervals throughout the day and still end up with that level of recommended exercise. It's also a good idea to think about exercise that feels pleasant to you, that if this is not a one-size-fits-all, that some people like to do group things, and so they do well in classes and uh, other kinds of activities where they've got other people there supporting them, like you heard from, from Anna. And then other people do better when they have their own discipline and they like to be quiet. Maybe that's the one time during the day that they don't have a beeper on and they don't have somebody asking them questions, that they can go out for a walk or go for a swim. It's important to think of things that are convenient. If you find exercise facilities or possibilities that are close to where you work or live, and um, you already heard mentioned that there's a lot of community programs, like check out your local YMCA and see what kinds of facilities and programs are offered there. There are many opportunities to expand exercise, but it's got to be convenient and it's got to be something that would fit into your normal routine. If it's inconvenient, you're not going to stay doing it. So again, think of that idea of this is something that needs to be sustained. It's also a good idea to, to actually get some alternative behaviors for when you feel bad. A lot of people eat when they feel either unhappy or happy or any kind of an emotional event or feeling that will stimulate them to eat. And so in our weight loss studies, we always start the very first day. We say, name some things you can do that are self-nurturing, that make you feel better, that don't involve eating. And go to that list when you have feelings that are, are tough and instead of eating. Studies have shown that if you don't come up with alternatives, then you're going to end up overeating every time you have an emotional upset. And unfortunately, emotional upsets are, are part of life. So it's better to not have that as the only coping mechanism that you have going. And lastly, I'd like to recommend a couple of resources that the American Dietetic Association has got a website that's just full of helpful information like some of these little techniques and strategies I just talked about. That's eatright.org. And also the American Cancer Society has a lot of useful take-home strategies for cancer survivors who want to keep their weight down. It's called cancer.org. And I'll stop now and turn it back over for discussion and time for questions. Thanks. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Rock, for just a very a power-packed um, informational um, tips and suggestions for everybody on, on the call. Lots of wonderful things that people can implement. Um, so thank you. And, uh, and also thank you for saying that it's, um, it's, each person has to individualize it to themselves. That's really important as well. So now we do have time for questions. We actually have lots of time for questions. I'm going to ask Melina to bring all of our speakers on board, Dr. Alfano, Dr. Schwartz, Dr. Ligabel, and Dr. Rock. And then I'm going to ask um, Melina to explain to you how to queue up for questions. Now, of course, because there are so many of you on the call today, we probably won't get to everyone's question, but please know that you can call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-HOPE at the end of the call with your questions. 
So please know that if we don't get to your question, and I'll repeat that again toward the end of the call. So, Melina, would you explain to everybody how to queue up for questions and let the questions begin? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Our first question comes from Allison S. Oh, my name is Linda Kaczynski, and I'm here at uh, Eisenhower Medical um, Facility. Uh, my question is, after you, I've done 30 rounds of treatment in chemotherapy, and everything is fine, but then your doctor doesn't really tell you that the possibility of gaining weight, I don't know if he doesn't tell you because he doesn't want to offend you, but then you go home and you gain 20 pounds, and then you're in this situation, and I think maybe doctors could help a little bit. I don't know, men doctors... Okay. What's your question? My question is, you know, why we need, why don't our doctors help us and explain that to us, that we're going to gain weight, even though we may feel bad? Well, thank you for that excellent question. I'm going to ask Dr. Ligabel to address that question to start, and then we may have some of the other speakers as well. So, um, Dr. Ligabel, if you could address that. Certainly, and I think that's a very good question and something that as a medical community, we are trying to become better at. And, you know, I think that for many, many years, medical oncologists and surgeons and radiation oncologists and all the people that care for cancer patients have been very focused on the specific cancer treatments and side effects that are better described in the kind of research studies that we do, like nausea and pain. And I think that as a group, many times we haven't know, known how to really address weight changes in cancer survivors. And there are more and more cancer survivors, and I think this is going to become a bigger and bigger issue. And the medical community, I think, is trying. And things like the American Cancer Society and the American College of Sports Medicine and all these guidelines that are being put forth, I think, offer a good blueprint for patients. But they're also important documents for physicians to bring these issues more to physicians' attention so that this is something that we talk to our patients about. Because I, I do think that um, there are times when, in a busy visit, when you're talking about side effects of therapy and other things that, that people don't focus on weight loss and weight changes because as Dr. Rock's very wonderful talk described, there's a lot of different aspects to this and it's not so straightforward as take a pill for this. And it's something that we need to get better at and I think that we are, but there's still a long way to go. Thank you. So it's a wonderful question and it really is an important question for uh, us to ask, and by offering this program, I hope that people will go back to the treating healthcare team and really um, address these concerns that you may have that you thought you couldn't raise with your treating healthcare team as well. Um, thank you. Our next question. Our next question comes from Adeline J. Hi, um, Dr. Mesner. Again, thank you so much for a wonderful program and a wonderful panel. Um, my question: I'm on Herceptin and steroids. My doctors. They just shrug it off when I complain about the weight gain, and it's affecting my joints and um, my bones. My question is, how long after the um, treatment will I see an increase or decrease um, with the weight from just medication alone? And I know the importance of um, exercise. Well, thank you for that excellent question, Ellen, and, and for your very kind remarks. I'm going to ask Dr. Ligabel to address that to start, and then I'm going to ask some of our other speakers to add to it. Dr. Ligabel? 
Certainly. So there has been a lot of research in breast cancer about the weight changes that occur after therapy. And many of the studies do suggest that women do continue to gain weight for a couple of years after cancer therapy. Um, I think especially when, when women are receiving things like steroids that can cause weight gain and fluid retention, that that can be even more pronounced. Um, but there is also good evidence that um, if you do start to incorporate some of these strategies, because when you're being treated with things like Herceptin, which is more of a maintenance treatment, many of the other side effects of therapy have begun to resolve, things like the fatigue from chemotherapy and the low blood counts and some of the other side effects. So this is actually a really good time to start a weight loss program um, and should be something that you can discuss with your doctor, and if, if your medical oncologist and other people don't have the type of resources, you can also speak with your primary care physician and things like that, because at this point in therapy and survivorship care, um, there aren't as many concerns about the actions of the, the cancer therapies in terms of side effects. Thank you. And Dr. Brock, did you want to add anything? Yes, there is something I'd like to add. I think you'd benefit a lot if you ask for a referral to a registered dietitian who could evaluate your diet. Because even though medications make you more likely to gain weight, you, you gain weight because of excess calories, back to that basic biological principle. And a dietitian could evaluate your diet and help you identify those things that are higher in calories that you could reduce and replace with those things like vegetables that are lower energy density. You might be getting more calories from things that you think are healthy, but in fact are, are helping you put on the pounds. Excellent. We are the multidisciplinary team here, so you can see that that's so important to involve a dietitian in this process. Excellent. Thank you. Our next question, please. Our next question comes from Francis L. Hi. Thank you for the wonderful presentation. My concern is how to gain weight. I have undergone a stem cell transplant over uh, 10 months ago, and ever since I've been trying to gain more weight, but I'm still under 100 pounds. I'm not heavy to begin with. I'm kind of slim, but now I'm even, uh, you know, slimmer. I would like to gain some weight. I understand that eating more calories would help, but I don't have that much an, a big appetite to do so, you know. Francis, that's an excellent question. Thank you for bringing the other perspective in as well. And I'm going to ask Dr. Ligabel and Dr. Rock to address that question. Uh, Dr. Ligabel? Sure. So we have really focused during this teleconference on weight gain, but there are absolutely uh, treatments for some cancers that can result in weight loss, and that can be an equally difficult problem to deal with. Um, and, you know, intensive therapies like stem cell transplants can cause a lot of weight loss and can make it hard for people to gain weight afterwards. There are supportive medications that have been developed to help people with appetite. Uh, many times people will have poor appetite in, in coordination also with a lot of fatigue. And there are symptom management groups that have done a lot of research into these things, looking at stimulants and things like that that can help people in this setting when, when 
people really can't gain weight or they are really continuing to suffer from significant side effects from their intensive therapy uh, for many months to years afterwards. Again, and I think Dr. Rock will probably suggest this, but again, this is absolutely a time when a referral to a registered dietitian would be very helpful because I think it's important to really be aware of the types of food that you're eating as well. As you recover from the side effects of treatment, it's important to know the right foods as you do develop more of an appetite that could help you gain weight. And, and Dr. Rock, did you want to comment? Yes, um, I'll reinforce that. A dietitian could be helpful, and even on this call, I can give you some specific strategies that are useful. One is to drink a lot of high-calorie beverages, because beverages don't have the same filling satiety effect that you get from solid food. And they can also be pretty nutritious, like fruit juice is a good example of a really high-calorie product that you can drink and you won't feel stuffed like you would if you were eating fruit. You can also add a lot of calories to food by adding a little bit more oil or nuts or peanut butter. Again, these are all the energy-dense foods that if you're trying to lose weight, you don't want to be filling up on. Also, it's interesting that you'll tend to be able to eat more food if you eat food that's cold or room temperature rather than hot food. Hot food tends to be more filling. And also spreading your eating out during the day. Don't try to eat just regular those three squares that I, I mentioned was so important for weight loss and for having healthy weight management. In your case, eating frequently smaller amounts during the day will not make you feel so full and will actually help add a lot of calories during the day. Excellent. Thank you. And thank you, Francis, for that wonderful question. Our next question, please. Our next question comes from Emil S. Yes, um, I'd like to find out, um, you've touched on hormone therapy and chemotherapy and everything else, but there is also the psychological effect that once you're diagnosed with cancer, you have a lower self-image of yourself, yeah, emotionally you're not doing well. I put on about, I would say, 40 pounds after I got my cancer diagnosis. I had prostate cancer, I had it surgically removed, and in the last year I've lost about 53 pounds from the walking, the dieting, the exercise, but there's also that psychological, um, do you uh, encourage people to seek psychological help also when they're going through cancer therapy? Well, you know, that's an excellent point, Emil, that you raise. And indeed, um, there are many people, of course, who take advantage of many of the um, services that many of the organizations that have partnered on today's program offer, free uh, supportive counseling programs and support groups and online support groups as well, telephone support groups, um, to really help um, to deal with the sense of oneself image being different or feeling different about oneself. So very important point to seek Many people will find that it will be useful to them to talk with others who are um, dealing with similar concerns emotionally and, and psychologically, and also to, or sometimes to talk to someone individually, um, sometimes just having a one-on-one -on -one counselor. I would say that with a number of cancer organizations that we have, uh, certainly listed on our program today, that many of them, and uh, you have the resources for them, many of them offer these services at no cost. They're free, and I would definitely take advantage of those services. Um, they can be very helpful in coping with um, both the cancer experience itself and in terms of long-term survivorship and survivorship in general. And um, Dr. Um, Alfano, did you want to add to that as well? 
Yes, thank you, Dr. Messner. So this is an excellent question, and I think it's important to know there are some people who have a really hard time losing weight through all of the wonderful strategies that our speakers have covered today. And for some people, this is because they have some issues that happened to them in the past or they have things that are part of their psychological well-being that are keeping them from being successful at their weight loss attempts. And there are special kinds of psychologists and other mental health care providers who specialize in helping people get over these barriers. Uh, and so I think it's important to talk to your health care providers and ask for a referral if you feel like you're one of these people to a mental health provider who's trained to help you get over the barriers so that you can effectively lose weight. Excellent. Thank you for that excellent question. Our next question, please. Our next question comes from Renee N. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, Renee, your question. Hi, thanks. Um, actually, my question is related to um, the comment that was just made, um, I actually was, I am a five and a half year survivor and I gained about 50 pounds, um, I think mostly from the steroids that they give you before chemo and um, at least for the first year and a half after my treatment, no matter what I did, um, none of the weight was coming off and I, you know, exercise five, six times a week, I still do. Um, and I actually do know a lot about nutrition. Um, Your question, please. The question is, what do you do um, physically or in terms of nutrition when everything you've tried seems not to work? Like you're still not losing weight despite exercising a lot and watching what you eat. Well, that's an excellent question. I'm going to ask, um, first of all, Dr. Ligabel to address the question in terms of whether there might be some other issues going on just medically in terms of just that could be contributing to that. Um, Dr. Ligabel, could you talk about just other kinds of um, things that survivors could experience that might contribute to weight gain from a physical perspective? Sure. Well, there are definitely um, things that can make weight loss more difficult for people. And when I have a patient who comes in complaining of trying to do everything that she can, exercising, watching what she eats, and she's not able to lose weight. Uh, we do look at things like thyroid levels. Um, some cancer treatments, radiation, and sometimes chemotherapy can uh, disrupt the level of the thyroid hormone, and that can make it difficult for people to lose weight. We also go through the medications that people are taking because there are medicines that are tied to more weight gain sometimes, antidepressants and other medicines. People find it harder to lose weight when they're on these drugs. So there are some medical things that I think it's, an, again, another reason why it's important to bring these concerns up with your healthcare team. Excellent. And, you know, actually, um, this is an excellent question because actually what you have right here on, this, on our team today, um, we have Dr. Schwartz who has a Ph.D. in really um, in exercise and physical activity. We have Dr. Ligabel who's a medical oncologist, Dr. Rock who's a dietitian, uh, Dr. Alfano who's a behavioral scientist, and uh, Carol Mester, I'm an oncology social worker. And you can see this whole team really recognizing that sometimes people really would want to come in and have an assessment by starting with their physician and really looking at their, their entire health um, portfolio to see what is going on here because it sounds like you're trying everything you can and it's not working. When you, and when you kind of hit that kind of wall, it's very good to consult with your physician, but also to pull in all members of the team to kind of see what, what could be happening here. Why is this not working? 
and to come up with a plan for you because it sounds like you've done a lot of really excellent things. I'm going to ask Dr. Schwartz to comment because I know, Dr. Schwartz, you were yourself were facing some similar issues and if you would like to comment as well. Yeah, I think um, your comments related to getting the whole team involved is really where I would start now. I would, I would suggest um, that she consult with her medical oncologist and her, her whole medical team and then really consider seeing a, a dietitian, a registered dietitian, and talking with an exercise trainer, ideally who has background in working with cancer survivors because sometimes just changing your exercise regimen a little bit will really affect um, – can affect your whole metabolism because you're using different muscles in different ways. And if you get stuck in the same rut, always doing the same thing, your body adjusts to that, and you sometimes need to stimulate it by doing different types of exercise. Uh, and I think, I think also just um, getting a, some psychological support can be very helpful to identify if you do have some kind of unknown barriers that are keeping you from being successful in this. And Dr. Alfano, do you want to comment as well? I just to echo what Dr. Schwartz was just saying about the importance of the team approach here. You know, we all have the same goal in in helping cancer survivors, but we're all coming at it from a little bit of a different perspective. And sometimes when you've been talking to one of us but not another one of us, that's all that all you need is to have that other perspective to get you over those barriers that you're experiencing. And Dr. Rock, I'd like to add something yeah. too that this would be a good case where keeping a food diary might reveal some real interesting things to you because in our studies we find that people actually underestimate what they eat by about 30%. So even though you're trying to eat healthy, you, you might inadvertently be getting a lot more calories in than you're aware of. So this has actually been very helpful for everyone on the call because it's kind of our last question on the call today, but it's an excellent question because it really does pinpoint a lot of what you've heard today um, to really kind of incorporate all of that into what you're doing and also, too, um, we, when we do these programs, we actually um, often have uh, representatives from different members of the healthcare team. And indeed, um, we all, as you see, we all are interested in helping you, but we do come at this from a little different, all different perspectives, all to the goal of really helping you. So you start with often with your physician, and then you really want to work with all these different members of the team to be sure that you're getting getting um, a resolution to your concern here, and I'm sure you will. I think that that's the other thing. I think perhaps um, we do want to say a word about the persistence of this. We, um, this is a call on survivorship, and you didn't get to where you were without significant persistence on your part, and, um, and now it's another level of persistence to really um, get a handle on any weight concerns that you have, and these things don't actually they don't happen. We often would like it to happen within a week or two. It often takes a lot of time, and we want you to work overtime on these things. Um, I just want to ask um, Dr. Um, Rock to comment on the time factor in terms of just um, that, um, that people, that often these kinds of weight programs can take a while. Well, I'm involved in a lot of studies that we're helping overweight breast cancer survivors lose weight. And we typically start out with a two-year goal, which is what I think a lot of people, when they want to lose weight, they think they want to drop 50 pounds by a school reunion or Christmas or something. And it's a long-term process because those behavioral changes that you can sustain are things that take practice. And it's that kind of steady goal setting that is, will really take you to the place you want to be, which is weight, not just weight loss, but it's the maintenance of the weight loss. you want to say a word about maintenance as well? 
Well, maintenance, we typically see people in the first six months of embarking on a weight loss goal, well, they lose most of their weight within that first six months. And here's, again, the importance of exercise. And women who've been able to increase their exercise time and intensity, those are the women that will continue to lose weight even throughout the first full year of involvement in a weight loss program. Thank you. Well, this has been an extraordinary program. I actually want to thank all of our speakers. This has just been really remarkable in terms of all of our speakers and, and their presentations. I want to thank all of you who've queued up. Really, the questions were just outstanding, and they really allowed us to, to elaborate further on such important points. I want to remind all of you this is a one-hour education program, and that in planning a program like this, we recognize that you all have many needs that, of course, go far beyond the scope of a one-hour program. So I do want to review with you the services that you can access when this call ends, because although the call will be ending soon, um, the services that you can access, those are endless. And I am going to focus on the services you can access from Cancer Care, um, where an organization that um, has a staff of 60 massive level trained oncology social workers, and we're here to provide a host of services to you, from practical and financial assistance to um, supportive counseling services, and also support groups, both on the telephone and online. And we also have lots of informational materials, uh, fact sheets and booklets. And of course, we have a lot of these workshops that we offer. Um, and so it's a good place to call if you have a question. 1-800-813-HOPE is our telephone number. All of our services are free. And our staff are here to answer your questions and help walk you through this experience. And in addition to Cancer Care, all of our collaborating organizations on today's program are also available to all of you. Most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I would not want anyone to feel you're alone in coping, in, in trying to deal with these weight concerns that you may have or any survivorship issues you may have. I want you to now feel you're part of a community of support and that we are here to help you. Now, I do want to remind you that we have Part 3 of this program on June 14th, Stress Management for Caregivers, Taking Care of Yourself Physically and Emotionally, and you're all welcome to participate in that program as well. And we do very much encourage you to please send in your evaluations. Um, for those of you who will be sending them in um, in the mail, we've provided a postage paid envelope. And for those of you who actually will be emailing them back to us, but we'd love your feedback because it really helps us to determine the important topics that are of concern to each of you. So again, as we conclude the program, I would like you not to feel that you're alone. I'd like you to know that you're part of a community of support, and whatever your question or concern is, please feel free to call us at 1-800-813-HOPE. Thank you so much, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect and have a wonderful day. <laughs>